we just look to you uh, this morning, and we want to hear from your heart, from your word this morning. Uh, I just pray that you'd uh, bless Josh as he speaks to us, and would you bless our our ears with the ability to just take in uh, from your spirit this morning, to receive from you into our hearts, into our minds this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, Hillcrest. It's really nice to be here with you today. And to those of you watching online, we welcome you. I kind of feel like coming home. I mean, we were here from 2005 to 2008. And the faces, many of you have changed. I don't recognize lots of you, but, but there's some of you that it's very nice to see again. And it's good. It feels like home coming back to this church. And it also feels like, you know, we're on this theme of renewing and rebuilding as Saskatchewan's been reopening and we're here and we're without mass. It feels like there's a new season opening up and we can, we can be excited about what the Lord is doing both in our country and, and around the world. There's lots of progress that needs to happen and we should be grateful for the place we're living. Yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about the idea of interceding for others And so even as we start, we're mindful that many churches around the world can't meet in person today. So we just keep keep our hearts prayerful that God will continue to make uh, all things work together for good as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in in countries like Nepal and other places where, where COVID is still raging. So yeah, bless the Lord that we're here together today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you. Well, I want to start by introducing myself a little more fully. I, as you can see, have a very beautiful family. Not because of me so much, but I have four young daughters and a very lovely wife. And so it's, it's with joy that I uh, introduce to you my family today. We're all here and we're glad to be in Moose Jaw together. So I am the academic dean at Eston College. And Eston College is the official college of ACOP which is the fellowship that this church is a part of. And I think that's part of the reason I was invited to come and speak today. Uh, I'm glad that I was given the honor. And I really love Hebrews, which is, is what we're studying and working through. So uh, the other thing I want to mention, though, before we jump into the Word of God, is the college has something that maybe some of you have never been to Eston, but we're launching September 1st. It's called ECO or EC online, and we're uh, hoping that it will make Bible college available to those who could never come to Eston. The idea is kind of like Netflix, you can pay $25 a month and have access to our whole catalog of courses. And I'm the primary person responsible for designing this, and I kind of like video games, so I've gamified it. When you watch a video, you get a point. When you participate in a forum, you get a point, and you can level up. So as you progress, and there's leaderboards, so you can see if you're beating your buddy who's also studying survey of the New Testament or whatever it is. I'm not sure what the Apostle Paul would have to say about all of this, (laughs) but it's going to be really epic. So if you sign up before September 1st, you'll get your first month for free. So go to ecaonline.ca. You have permission to do that right now. Get out your phone, especially those of you who are online. Just close this tab and, you know, switch over to ecaonline.ca, sign up, and I'll see you there in September. Looking forward to that. So let's start going towards scripture, and uh, I want to start by saying I received an amazing email this past week. As a teacher, sometimes I get the privilege of giving somebody an academic reference, which is really fun if they're a good student. If they're one of those, like, slackers, they're like, can you give me a reference? I'm like, probably not. But most of the time, it's an honor to give students a reference. And I got this email, not asking me for anything, but saying thank you for the reference. Because it was like six or seven months after the fact, after she had asked for the reference, I got this email saying I've been accepted into my program. And even though all I did was give her a little reference, it felt like I was sharing in her success. I was participating in the joy of this accomplishment, even though, you know, in a sense, we say things like standing on the shoulders of others. I hadn't really done much. You know, it took me 10 minutes to fill out the reference. 
but she was celebrating and sending me an email, and it made my day to be thanked for giving this reference. And I know some of you maybe can't relate to the idea of giving academic references out, but we all understand what it feels like to share in somebody else's success. Kids, are you listening? Kids, do you know what it feels like when, when mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whoever it is comes to your ball game and they're cheering? Unless they're that parent who's really annoying because they're so loud and you'd rather wish they'd stay home. Yeah, mom, dad, they're streaming this. You can just stay home. <laughs> but we all know COVID really taught us how painful it is that we can't share in the success of others. Like those of my students who graduated, you know, like two Septembers back, or, or when do we do grad? April? Two Aprils back. And it was so lame. You know, we put together a little PowerPoint and slapped it on Facebook. Congratulations, graduates. You know, the poor, poor sucker who would have been able to give his valedictorian speech and just felt so bad for them. These milestones in our lives that we can't celebrate. I don't really love going to weddings. Like, I don't like dressing up, so you're lucky. But I, I was able to skip two or three weddings that normally we would have went to. Uh, sorry, students, I, I do love you. I just don't love weddings all that much. Um, and, and my kids, that's where COVID hit me the hardest, I think, was when grandparents couldn't come to dance recitals, or the dance recital was so brutal. It was just like a video that you submit, and then you got feedback by email. Oh, and the piano recital, the same kind of business, hey? Just sit with your camera and photo, like, oh. Just, also, how many of you are sports people, right? Watching the Olympics right now with empty stadiums? How strange. Uh, let's uh, show this one here. So how many of you like hockey when, the, when, you know, they put the cardboard cutouts in the stands? Just, what a strange world we in. And, and this made me ponder, right? Why bother? Why not just leave the stands empty? I was, th- I was researching it a little bit to see what the athletes had to say. Does anyone remember when LeBron James was like, I ain't playing if there ain't no fans. I don't really know what he sounds like because I'm just pretending to be a sports guy right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's, uh, there's a sense in which it's just not as fun if others can't share it. They can't enjoy the accomplishment the same way. And, and really, if you're a true sports fan, when your team loses, you have a kind of a downer day. That's why I don't do sports. Like, I'd just be probably cheering for the Leafs or something. <laughs> anyway, this, the Olympics being on reminded me of a study that was done on Olympic speeches in uh, 2000 and 2002. And, and it was just an interesting study because what they did was they compared athletes from the East with athletes from the West. So what we mean by that are European countries and North America as the West, and then Asia and Africa and these other countries. You know, you, you know the map. I don't have to explain it to you. So American athletes, they took, and they just like looked for how often the first person pronoun appears in their thank you speeches. I won this medal. So here's the sample of the very, very best example of an American athlete saying, thank you for this gold medal. I think I just stayed focused. It was time to show the world what I could do. Thanks, Elsa. I just said, no, this is my night. Versus the Japanese athletes. So here's an example. Here is the best coach in the world and the best manager in the world and all the people who support me. All of these things were getting together and became a gold medal. I didn't get it alone. Wow, hey, what a difference between the American athlete and the Japanese athlete. And this strikes me as important because as Westerners, we are what scholars call individualists. We focus on the individual as the most important piece of society. So this book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, talks about how hard it can be for us to read the Bible 
because we come to it with all of our individualistic assumptions. We think when Paul is talking to you, that's a singular you. But of course, oh, there's this great plugin you can get for your browser that is called the Texas Bible plugin. And what it does is it changes all the use to y'all. So that, <laughs> so that while you're reading, you won't be tricked into thinking Paul's talking to you as an individual. He is, but he's talking to you as part of the group, as the body of Christ. And so even something as basic as our language uh, can trick us into thinking that being an individual is the most important part of what it means to be a Christian. But the Bible was written in a collectivist culture. So collectivist people think differently. They, they think they are the group. They don't see themselves as an individual in a group. Which, so we've been, we've been walking through some pretty, pretty hard things lately with the residential schools and the findings of the mass graves. And some of my students, my indigenous students, they won't have had a grandparent or a parent who was in a residential school. But one of their friends' grandparents was. And so for me, that's like a distant connection. Um, if one of my friend's grandparents went through something traumatic, that's a distant connection. But, but if you're from a collectivist culture, and indigenous cultures are much more collectivist than, than an individualist culture is, what you find is that what happens to one person happens to everyone. And the weight of what happened to a distant grandparent is actually something that's happened to me. So I think that's an important reminder for my heart to say, oh, this doesn't seem like that should be such a big deal to you because it's so far removed from you. When in a sense, they see themselves not as a member of the group, but as the group. Everyone is the group. So that's kind of heavy, but, but it's an important reminder for a cultural like sensitivity in our day. And it really is a helpful reminder, too, as we turn to Scripture and we think about Hebrews, because Hebrews is tough slugging. I've taught through several different books of the New Testament, and Hebrews was one of them. Hebrews is one of the hardest books to study. In fact, the author of Hebrews, he himself says to us, this is, uh, you know, I'd like to give you more solid food, but, but you're not ready for it, and this is baby food, and, and, and that's, that's Paul talking, and he's, he says, I want to give you solid food. Well, the author of Hebrews, he's the one who's like, here's the steak. When you come to Hebrews, you're, you're getting a big, solid meal, and you got to really chew to get through it. And we're in the middle of Hebrews now in our series and renewing and rebuilding our faith. And as you're walking through the middle of Hebrews, it's kind of like the Leviticus of the New Testament, if you've ever tried to do a Bible reading plan and you get to the book of Leviticus, uh, enough priests already, enough counting plates. Like, I've, I'm going to skip ahead to Psalms where I can at least understand or care. And I feel like a lot of people, they get to the middle of Hebrews and the same kind of problem happens. I just don't relate to priests and sacrifices and gore. Um, maybe if you're a farm kid, you like it. I don't know. I was always being invited to Brandians when I was a boy. Never went. <laughs> but, but priesthood is, is like the essential theme of about six or seven chapters of Hebrews. And if we don't understand it in a fresh way, we just can't grasp Hebrews. So I know last week Daniel talked a little bit about Hebrews, if you were here, and he was talking about Jesus as a better high priest. And I'm going to continue that theme today based on Hebrews 7. And I want to try and refresh the idea of priesthood for you, because it's one that, like I said, we just don't have familiar categories for in our day. Like, we have pastors, but a pastor doesn't function the same way that a priest did in the Old Testament. It's just natural for us to think, okay, well, they must be like our pastors. But, but an ancient priest in, in the Old Testament was not like a pastor. They did some teaching, and they kind of cared for the people, but not the way a modern pastor does. The priest was more responsible for the rituals surrounding the tabernacle and then later the temple, and making sure that everything functioned according to God's law. So I want to give you three metaphors to help us try to refresh our concept of what an ancient priest looked like. 
I think Daniel said this last week, that a, that a priest is like a mediator or a go-between between the people and God. And that's a good start. But let's, try, let's like really try this morning to rethink what does priest mean in the Old Testament. So the first metaphor is the idea of a bank. And I'm stealing these from Old Testament survey textbooks. Come and talk to me if you care where they come from. Walton. Okay, so the first one, the idea of a bank. Any of you have worked in a bank, been responsible for the vault? You know the code? Well, you've seen movies about banks at least. You've been in a bank or do you do it all online now? Okay, so hopefully we can understand this still. So you got, you got the bank and you got the vault in the center of the bank and it's all protected. Can any employee just wander into the bank whenever they want to? Oh, absolutely not. Does everyone have access to the vault? I sure hope not. I'm not banking there if that's the case. Mind you, it's all ones and zeros anyway. Um, sorry, my cynical side just came out. <laughs> it does that when I need a drink of water. Um, and in this regard then, the vault is like the center of the importance of the bank. And for that reason, it has to be carefully guarded and managed. And everyone needs proper protocol to know what to do if, if an emergency happens. Say, some kind of criminals come in and want access to the bank. Well, all these gates and doors start slamming shut if you press the right button, right? And the police start showing up. In that sense, the bank is a similar kind of concept to what the ancient tabernacle is like. Let's, let's just hold that thought for a second and try a second metaphor. So the first one being the bank. The second is the idea of secret service agents. I like this one a lot. So secret service agents who look after the president of the United States. Can you imagine being that guy when it was Trump? Oh my word, how much more stressful your job would have gotten. (sighs) So your job, make sure to guard the president's access. Not anyone can just wander up to the president whenever they want to talk to him you got to get through rows and rows of security guards, secret service agents. They all got their fancy little microphone thing like Kurt has on the stage here. And they're talking to each other, making sure that there's no threats in the area. And if there is, a helicopter is going to come and whisk the president away. They're acting like guards to keep access or special authority to make sure that the president is safe and guarded and properly managed so that... Nothing bad happens to him. So again, I mean, imagine you're seeing the similarity with the bank. One more metaphor before we try to compare it to the ancient tabernacle. The last one, this is one that one of my students came up with when I was explaining the first two. So imagine you work in a nuclear power plant and your job is to, I don't know, what do they do with nuclear power plants? They Well, according to Homer Simpson, they just press a button, right? But your job is to make sure that the cores don't overheat. It's your ultimate responsibility. So you have to manage the water cooling systems and all the... I don't know. I'm talking out of my league here. But the point is, you would be very familiar with your responsibilities. Because if anything goes wrong, people are going to be looking sideways at you. Uh, That thing melted down. We're looking for a scapegoat here. So you would have, like, you know what, most jobs, you don't really read the manual. Uh, Maybe some of you have very serious jobs. But, um, and I rate the stinking manuals at my college, so I have to know them inside and out. But um, ABHE is coming in a few uh, months to do a self-study of the college. I'm sorry if they're watching this sermon. (laughs) Okay, um... As I get older, I get less inhibited. Um, Where were we? Yeah, so so you would have your job responsibilities, you'd have them memorized, and you'd have them understood through and through because the weight of the responsibility of working in a nuclear power plant would make it so you took your job so, so seriously. Does that make sense? Okay, so capture all three of these metaphors and like seek to combine them, the weight, the access, the importance of the vault, the importance of the president, and, and the danger or the toxicity that could be produced and, and like explode into the area if, if things aren't done properly, if proper protocol isn't followed. 
So then you could say that's the job of the ancient priest, is to make sure that the presence of God that dwells in the midst of the tabernacle, in the most sacred, holy, vault-like place, is guarded so that proper access is given. And that the sacrifices that need to be given are given at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way and all the protocols are followed. And, if, you know, we have some examples in the Old Testament where this, the protocols aren't followed and things explode or people are swallowed up by the ground. Um, it's hard for us to fathom. Like, I look at Kurt and I look at Pastor Steve here and I'm like, these guys don't look much like Secret Service. Like, maybe they're going to rush the stage soon and take the microphone away from me. But there's a sense in which I think about my, my dad as a pastor, and it wasn't about guarding access. It was, it was rather about inviting people to come and know God. But the ancient priests sort of had the job of keeping people out because the presence of God was so dangerous to us that if we didn't come in the appropriate way at the appropriate time, it would reach out and destroy us. And I don't think that's news to you if you've been reading the Bible a long time. Like, this, this is familiar stuff. But as we think about Jesus as our better high priest, what does that mean in light of what the ancient priest was like? So we're going to go there next. So the question I want to ask you is, why? Why is Jesus such a better high priest? Okay, so let's look at this first. When the ancient high priests went into the Holy of Holies, they wore the ephod, or the, the, the high priestly breastplate, which had 12 gems on it, and each of the gems had one of the tribes of Israel, their names written on those gems. So you got your gemstones for each tribe. And the point of that is when the priest goes into the presence of God, it's as if he's bringing all 12 tribes with him. Or to say it like more bluntly, all 12 tribes are crowding into this little closet at once in the collectivist sense, like the priest is all the people. He stands in their place. He is representing everyone at once. And Hebrews seven twenty-seven says this very specifically. Jesus isn't like the other high priests. They need to offer sacrifices day after day. First, they bring offerings for their own sins. Then they do it for the sins of the people. So it's interesting, right? He's, he stands as an individual. He has to offer sacrifice for his own sin. But at the same time, he's able to represent collectively everyone in his own person. And they, they did this annually on the Day of Atonement. They were able to come in and bring a sacrifice on behalf of themselves, but also on behalf of all the people. Okay, I like to show my students this picture. Can you guess who those people are? Look at the apple in the woman's hand. Does that give you a clue? So this is supposed to be Adam and Eve, and maybe it's too far away for some of you, but if you can, if you can make out, like it kind of looks like their brains are exposed almost. Those are all those little, little people make up their faces. And the idea is this sense of what we call corporate solidarity or, or collectivism. That in Adam and Eve, all people reside. Have you ever heard that song, Were You There? I'm going to try and sing. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know that one? What's the implied answer? The implied answer is... I, I was there. I was just as responsible as the people that, that nailed in his hands. Because what, in a collectivist culture, what one person does, everyone does. So when Adam and Eve are shown in this painting, the sense is that everyone, you know, sometimes I joke, especially when a mosquito bites me, like, oh, I wish Eve hadn't eaten that apple. And then the fall and all the evil things in the world wouldn't have happened. And then you're like, do you think you would have eaten the apple? The implied answer should be, yeah, I, would. I was there. Were you there when Eve ate the apple? In a sense, what Eve did, she did on, Eve and Adam, did on all of our behalfs. That we, we reside in, in them. And this is good news in a way because, you know, as individualists, we're like, well, that's not fair. I would have done something different. No, you wouldn't. 
Come on. Um, You know yourself. The point is, it's good news because if they can represent us, so too then can a better high priest. It, it, It cuts both ways. So that's where we're headed in terms of why is Jesus a better high priest. And Hebrews, this section of Hebrews shows us so many reasons. I was preparing this sermon and I'm like, oh, couldn't they have just given me two verses to preach? Because there's way too many things here to cover in one sermon. But I'm going to do my best and I'm going to leave a few of them out. Some of the reasons why Jesus is our better high priest. Okay, so I could go into detail explaining more about uh, why temples and sacrifices and curtains and so on. Um, But I think as modern people, we just don't relate to those concepts very well. You know what concept we do relate to still? That, that still has a sense of collectivism about it? That is the, the sense of a courtroom. So how many of you like those kind of law, lawyer shows where it's all drama and someone's always on the edge of being sentenced to death um, or being saved from the death sentence? You know, I love those shows. They're so exciting. Um, and, and I think if I had another life to live, I think being a lawyer might be fun. But I'm afraid those TV shows make it out to be a little more romantic than it is. So I want to talk about this idea of intercession or caring about others or, or representing others. And, and the high priest did this, right? This is the word that we're going to use to justify, switching it from priest metaphor to lawyer metaphor. So Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So the word intercede is essentially, you know, some of you practice intercessory prayer where you're praying on behalf of someone else. Intercede is a mediator sort of word, a bridging word where you stand in the gap for somebody else. And that's what Hebrews says Jesus does. So the word that, you know, based on a couple other passages in the New Testament too, this is what Jesus does for us now. Often as Christians, we think about Jesus' earthly ministry when he came, and we think about his coming return when he will, he will return and redeem all things. But what is Jesus doing right now? What is his like, current purpose? And Hebrews tells us, as, long, as well as a couple other passages, that his current role is to intercede for you. That he is in the heavenly room with God the Father, and he is interceding on your behalf. And that's all he does. That's what he lives to do, Hebrews says. That's a pretty awesome thing to think that that's what Jesus' current job description is. Intercede on behalf of the family of God. So let's try to walk through this idea of intercession a little bit. And uh, to do that, I think, I think we need to take a little comedic break. So I'm looking for a young volunteer. So somebody, I think, around the age of 12. Do I have any 12-year-olds in the house? You're going to come up on stage and you're brave and you're bold and you can talk into a microphone? 13-year-old? Around that age? Do I, have a, do I have any volunteers? Okay, come on up. What's your name? Can't hear you. <laughs> I'll get you a microphone. What's your name? Alora. I'm married to Elora. Welcome, Elora. Let's give her a hand. Okay, Elora, here's the deal. You are a very bad criminal. And you're going to court. Okay? So how much do you know about lawyers and lawyering and the law? They write a lot. They read a lot? They write. They write a lot, yeah, they do. They have to write a lot of briefings and all that kind of thing. I, I watch a lot of lawyer shows. And uh, how much do you know? Well, first of all, let me ask you, are you willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, so here's the deal. The, the accusations against you are very serious. Um, I'm looking at your parents back here. Is she a good girl, or do you think she deserves a death sentence? Um, 
so yeah, there's a possibility that you could get put away for the rest of your life. This is pretty serious. Um, how much do you know about precedent? Like how many times this court, this similar court cases happened? Would you um, say that you're pretty well versed in, in the history of similar court cases? No. No, that's the right answer. And are you thinking it would be a good, good idea, therefore, because of your lack of knowledge about the law, your lack of history, your lack of experience being a lawyer, do you think it would be a good idea for you to act as your own lawyer? Because you can do that if you want to. You can be your own lawyer. I don't think I'd be good at it. Wise person. I mean, even if you were good at it, like, given your age and your lack of experience and history... Would it be wise to represent yourself? No. No. Okay. So here's the deal. Let's pretend that I'm a lawyer now. I dress real fancy. And I've been doing this a long time. Okay? I come from a very prestigious law firm. And you can ask me some questions about my lawyering now. Do you, like, you can ask me, like, do you think you're a good lawyer? That kind of thing. Like, you decide if you want to hire me. Okay? You go ahead. Are you a good lawyer? Oh, you better believe it. I haven't lost a case since, well, I haven't lost a case. Have you even had a case before? Oh, my word. (laughs) She might be a good lawyer. (laughs) Uh, Laura, well done. Yeah, like, let's say I'm world famous for my expertise and my ability to talk to a judge. Oh, yeah. I've had many cases. Any other questions? No. No. Now, um, would you like to hire me then as your lawyer instead of representing yourself? Sure. She's just so enthusiastic. <laughs> Let's give Laura a hand. Thank you. All right. So I brought that idea up because the idea of representing yourself in court maybe has a certain romantic appeal to it. I don't need those experts. I can just talk straight to the judge. Good luck. See, a lawyer, here's a quote for you. Your lawyer, through a legal transaction, becomes you in court. So what do you look like to the court? You look like your attorney. You are your attorney. So in a representative way, that's even deeper than, it's legal. In a legal sense, you become your lawyer. Whatever verdict they can get for you applies to you. The only lucky thing for them is that it doesn't apply to them. If they had to go to jail too, maybe they'd work a little harder for you. What this means, in a real way, is that you're lost in your advocate or your lawyer. You are your advocate. So however your advocate looks to the court, that's how you look. Therefore, you should hire the very best lawyer you can afford. If you hire a jerk, you look like a jerk. You want, to get, you want to get the very, very best lawyer you could possibly secure because then you're guaranteeing the best outcome for yourself. Makes sense. And I guess this metaphor helps me because this is what Hebrews is talking about using high priestly language. This is why Jesus is a better high priest. This is the question we're trying to answer is, why is Jesus a better high priest than all those who came before? What makes him so much better? Okay, let's try and play with the law metaphor a little more, the court metaphor. So now, all of you imagine you're on trial. And the trial is going for decades. I don't know what kind of criminals you all are, but this this trial is not wrapping up anytime soon. It's going for decades Let's say your first lawyer retires and he passes it on to the next guy. And the next guy doesn't care as much as the first lawyer. And this is decades, okay? So you go through, I don't know, a dozen different lawyers. You're a terrible criminal and the courts just can't decide. And they keep losing ground because each new lawyer has to figure it out for, from scratch. And, and worst case scenario, one of these lawyers happens to be a criminal themselves. And, and hypothetically, they, they've committed the same crime that you've committed. So now you've got this corrupt lawyer who's taken most of your money 
And he's living on the beaches of Hawaii instead of spending his time working on your case. And things are just getting worse and worse the longer the decades go by. By contrast, imagine that Jesus is your lawyer. Instead of going through many lawyers, he is your permanent lawyer. He never changes. In in fact, he doesn't even sleep. He's so committed to your case because he's divine, he doesn't need to sleep. He, 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 it says he intercedes always for you. That's what he lives to do. That's his whole mission in life. His whole job description is to work on your case. And he never stops. It's all he's committed to. Here's the verse that I keep referencing. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He cares about your case so much that he offers himself as the bond payment for your bail. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but this word in Hebrews 7.22, I looked it up in a few different translations. Most modern translations will just say he's the guarantee of a better covenant. But when you, when you see it like this, he's the guarantor, or he is the collateral, or the surety of a better covenant. It's kind of like this story... Uh, the Good Samaritan, hey, who's like, whatever costs he incurs, I will take it on myself. There's a few different examples from the ancient world where a person offered themselves as surety or, or collateral for someone else. And it, it was pretty risky to do so, especially if you did it in writing, because it meant that whatever risk or punishment this person was assuming, you were assuming yourself as well. So the idea of a bond payment, like, if they screw it up, they, they skip town, you owe the bond payment. That kind of helps me get, a, get my head wrapped around what, what Hebrews is saying when it says he's the guarantee of a better covenant. The next verse is even more profound. It says Jesus gave one sacrifice for the sins of the people. He gave it once and for all time. He did it by offering himself. So this bond payment, the judge receives it, not just as a bond payment, but as an exchange. He says, okay, Jesus, the sacrifice you made on the cross is not just adequate payment, it's more than enough. It covers everyone's sins for all of time. Really? Yes, that's, that's the message of, the, of why Jesus is a better high priest. Because this payment is accepted by the judge as full and complete payment for all time which is just too good news. Like, you couldn't ask for a better lawyer to represent you. You will never be brought back to court because of of these crimes. For the rest of time, you have been cleared. Amnesty, total amnesty. Unbelievably good news. So you might be thinking to yourself, that's good. I like that, Josh. Jesus is a great lawyer, a great high priest. But honestly, I'm not on trial. I, I don't have a decades-long trial against me. Um, there's a great article that I read called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Uh, the reason it's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt is because people like Sigmund Freud and other secular prophets, they predicted that as society became less religious people would stop feeling guilty as they got rid of those old hangovers from religion. And uh, do you think that's happened? Well, the article says strange persistence of guilt. It it, it continues to persist in spite of the progressive changes we've made in our culture. Do you think people feel more guilty today because they don't believe in sin or less than they used to? Or, Or is just guilt going to be part of the human condition regardless of whether you're religious or not? It's an interesting question. So this is a quote from the article. This is a quote from the article. Let's go to whatever donation I make. Go, there it is. So whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. We've got all kinds of things. We've got colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap for. I just think about some of the normal things in my daily life, like do I spend enough time with my children? Like, can you get through a day without feeling guilty for something? 
If you do, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. You're probably the most carefree and happy person in the world. So the strange persistence of guilt seems to me to be a given. And no matter what changes regarding whether or not people believe in God or, or religion, that guilt is just part of the human condition that, that we can't live up to our own standards. So how many of you would be happy to have your thoughts from the last half hour projected on this screen? Hmm? I'm not sure that I would be, and I've been vocalizing them. As a culture, we have all these reasons to feel guilty, and they're not going away anytime soon. You see, in a real way, you are in a decades-long court case in your mind, and you are your own harshest judge. Um, there's, there, that's a reality. That, that strange thought experiment is, is a reality. And the hard thing is, let's go to the next quote, guilt is a crafty trickster and a chameleon, capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size and appearance, even its location, all the while managing to persist and deepen. It's, it's hard, hey? You, you conquer one thing in your life, and the next thing to feel bad about pops up. Do you know what I'm talking about, or am I the only one in the room who ever is like this? Is it just that we're PKs, Kurt? Like... <laughs> Just grow up with high standards to live up to. Oh, as I've been parenting my own kids, I just realized, like, it is just hard to be a human. It's not that I'm their dad. Um. <laughs> so as we, as we consider how guilt is just part of the human condition, it's one of the reasons that most religions offer some way to atone for our guilt. Some way of saying, okay, how can I trade my guilt for a sense of peace? And we need that. We need a release from the weight that we carry. And I would love to be a carefree person who has, like, one guy, one guy calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That I'm not concerned about my ego and myself. I'm, I'm just relaxed and caring for others and not worried about what people think of me. Oh, man, do you, do you ever outgrow that? Brian Heaney's shaking his head, so... I guess we know the answer. So let's talk about the good news here. Like, you might, you might not believe Christianity is true, like, all the way through, but I can't understand why you wouldn't want it to be true. Like, this is such good news. That there is a lawyer or a high priest who's willing to go, and, and he's pure, he's clean, he's, he's the God-man who's offered himself in our place. He's trading his life in exchange for our sin. And you couldn't have a better lawyer than, than the judge's son, right? Who loves him and who has sent him on your behalf because the father loves you too. I mean, this is the best story that's ever been told. And all other stories are faint shadows of it. In fact, that's what, the, what Hebrews is saying, that all high priests that came before Jesus were faint shadows of the ultimate better high priest, who is Jesus. So let's talk about the good news. It's, it's good news that there's an advocate or a lawyer outside of yourself who's happy to take the punishment for your crimes, for your guilt, and who will, will willingly intercede on your behalf. That's what it says he lives to do. That's good news. It's good news that there's someone better than us, more holy than us, more powerful than us, who's on our side. Like I started at the, at the beginning of my sermon, it's the ultimate reference. You apply for any job with this guy as your reference. You're a shoo-in. You, you have all the favor of the Father. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. When the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus and all of his favor is bestowed on you. It's good news that you are loved in a permanent and unchanging way. It gives you a solid place for your identity, like that freedom of self-forgetfulness. Here, let's go to that next quote from Tim Keller, Making Sense of God. There has to be somebody whom you adore who adores you. Someone whom you cannot but praise, who praises and loves you. That is the foundation of identity. 
And this is a quote from Tolkien, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Just like thinking about the kids, hey? What it feels like to have mom or dad at your piano recital or, or grandma and grandpa. And especially like my dad plays piano and he, he's so excited that my girls are playing piano. To have him come along and put his arm around one of the girls and say, well done. You have to have someone you adore, whom you adore, who is worthy of your adoration, who adores you. And when you do, the core of your identity becomes a solid place, a place that's secure and from which you can live out the peace that we all long for. That's good news. And it all starts with a simple cry of help. Help me today, Jesus, to believe that you are my advocate before the Father and you take all my guilt. And I can't promise you that if you do this, if you cry out to Jesus today, that it will all, all your guilt will immediately go away. But I can promise you that if you do that with trust, that you will always have a place to take that guilt. You will always have an advocate who will take it on your behalf. And you won't have to carry it alone. But the good news is Jesus says it's gone. It's, you don't have to carry it. It's just so hard for us to believe. He says it's gone as far as the east is from the west. So far has, has the Father removed my sins from me. Sometimes my students come to me, like kids who were raised in a Christian home, and they're just struggling with their sin. They're struggling with their guilt, their shame. They come to me, and they're just crying in my office. And, you know, you get used to tears after a while. Keep a Kleenex box handy. Pass it over, and they, they're just struggling with something, and you say, it's okay. It's okay. One of my favorite verses, and, and one that every Christian should memorize, comes from 1 John 3.20. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. What he knows is that Jesus is your advocate. Amen? And he is on your side. It's good news. As I close, can you imagine what a group of people who actually believe Jesus is their advocate would be like? What would they be like in the city of Mustia? Not concerned about defending themselves? not concerned about what people think about them? If we truly believe we have such a great advocate, why wouldn't we want to advocate on behalf of others? We'd turn our attention away from ourselves and care more about others. Do you know that this church has a community advocate on staff? This is Daisy Richardson, and she's one of the pastors here on staff, and she has been an important person in my life. She used to work at the Bible school when I was a student, and she's been one of my cheerleaders. And Daisy is a cheerleader for, what's it say in her job description? I got a quote out of it for you. To passionately and practically advocate for the oppressed, the abandoned, the helpless, and those in spiritual, relational, and physical need. Not every worldview produces this, where you hire someone to advocate for those outside of the building. This isn't a club. The church exists for the sake of those who don't come here. Right? And so to have a community advocate on staff whose job is to connect you with the hurting people in Moosejaw. She functions like a mediator who says, I am cheering for those who aren't in the building. And I want to plug you in. And I was on your website, and the link is up here, hillcrestmj.com slash community hyphen involvement. And it says, you are partnering with six local organizations in the city of Moosejaw. It was one of our favorite things when we were coming to this church, especially the food drive, going around town and collecting the food, and how much food, like you guys make the news. It's, it's awesome. I love to be a part of a church that advocates for those that aren't in the building. So in your own life today, as we close, I want you to ask yourself two questions. What areas of life do I need to believe again that Jesus is my advocate? Where are you holding yourself up to too high of standards? What areas of guilt are you feeling? Sometimes it does mean you need to change your life. But it's a lot easier if you can take it to Jesus first and say, help me with this. Help me know what to do. Help me to not feel so guilty and so then I can live out of peace, not, not guilt, knowing that you've already paid the price. Sometimes you need to go to somebody and make things right. But yeah, living in a state of guilt, it's like, it's, it's what it means to be human, but let's, 
let's also realize that's not what God wanted for us. He wanted a state of innocence where we could have that freedom of self-forgetfulness like a child. Just so uninhibited. Just so enjoying life. What ways can I be an advocate for others today? What ways can I care for others and be like Jesus as I have such a great advocate on my team? So reflect on those two questions. So good to be with you, Church of Hillcrest, Moose Jaw. Uh, Love you and really are glad um, to be, in a sense, a part of the body of Christ with you today. Amen? Let's praise the Lord that he's such a great advocate. Well, let's, yeah, let's thank Josh for coming and bringing clarity to the word for us. And uh, again, I just want to encourage each of you, if you haven't been tracking with us yet in Hebrews, uh, there's a reading plan you can get through, version, and you can read through the scripture uh, with us. You can catch up or just join where we are. And again, the invitation, I think, in Hebrews, well, again, there's this whole congregation of people that are thinking about walking away because they're weary, uh, they're tired of how Christianity is making their lives difficult. And some of them are just maybe feeling tired or blah in their faith. But the author doesn't respond by saying, oh, it's going to be okay and let's just relax, let's calm down. Instead, he takes them to this very intense place and he says, you really got to get engaged. Let's go to the scripture, let's think about this and let's have our lives transformed by the word. So I just want to invite you to engage with the word here this summer. Thank you, Josh, for coming and bringing clarity uh, to us and I'm looking forward to continuing on this journey uh, with you in Hebrews. Uh, If you've been here with us this morning and there's some way you feel like you need to respond, maybe it's thinking through these questions, Uh, maybe it's just taking a moment to pray about something that came up during uh, the teaching time here, or maybe you came even in this morning and you already had something on your mind or in your heart that you'd like to pray for, we'd love to pray with you here at the end of the service. We want to say have a great week, thank you for being a part of our service, and if you'd like to pray with someone, please come on forward after the service. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a great week.